Okay, I assume that uh, we are mostly ready. Let me quickly get a couple of things out of the way did you start here. Your I did start my recorder. I did push it twice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we will have no class on the 27th and the 20th. I'm sorry, and the 3rd of January, 27th of December and the 3rd of January, because that's the way Terry wants it. So that's why. <laughs> Actually, we uh, it's a dark time of the year, and it really is kind of nice to get the daylight going back the other direction. I should also say that we're we do now have Cliffside Office at AlaskaGmail.com operational. I answered a couple of emails. Who'd have thought that was possible 15 years ago? Uh, we still have Cliffside Office at Alaska.net. That'll go away here pretty soon, and I'll have to send messages to lots of people to let them know that that's changed. And I don't know if they can see the smoke machine. They can't? Well, I don't have a smoke machine. I am I am a rock star, though, aren't I? Yeah, I think. One person agrees that's a humidifier because it's Alaska. Okay, a couple other things really quickly. Uh, Immunosensense. Immunosenescence. There we go. Too many S's in there and C's for me. Immunosenescence is the decline in an elderly person's immune functionality, which is also called twilight immunity. That's what us elderly people have. And we also have chronic low-grade inflammation in our joints. All of us that are my age understand what that means. We just do. So that combination, immunosenescence and inflammation, chronic inflammation, leads us to be particularly vulnerable to inflammatory diseases, which this COVID-19 is. This immunosenescence also results in diminished responses to vaccines. Isn't that really kind of interesting? I hope you think it's so. Um, as you know, that's why the annual flu vaccines uh, are notoriously unaffected or ineffective to the elderly. We don't do well with those flu vaccines. There's a high level of contagion for us, irrespective of the vaccine, just because, uh, proportionally to our population, just because of the immunosenescence. And so when we're looking at this COVID vaccine, you'll notice that the vaccinologists, if you want to be into vaccinology, uh, but if you do, the vaccinologists are not anxious to have the elderly take this vaccine because it it eliminates, not as eliminate, it degrades their their percentages significantly. If you give me the vaccine, I am less likely to be affected uh, positively by it than, say, a 20-year-old whose natural immune system probably doesn't need the vaccine. All of that's going into the calculation. I'm watching this vaccine rush, uh, which I hope is wonderful. I really do. Uh, I do think that the elderly still remain at risk just based on the sciences. Uh, but nonetheless, I hope it works. I hope it does well for the young so that the country can at least have a respite from this nasty thing. But I know the statistics because I do study the statistics a lot more than I should. People over 65, people in my age group, my cohort, we make up 80% of the COVID deaths in the world. So the global deaths are 80% of them are our, my age. Uh, and, uh, and even though we're only 9% of the population globally, we are almost 50% uh, of the uh, 
COVID cases. So lots of difficulty there for the elderly because our ability, our immunosenescence is such that uh, we are particularly fragile. So that, just get that off. The, I just want you older people we're, that, that are like me, I want you to be alert and vigilant. We have some people we know now, don't we? Uh, all of us, we, there's only three of us in this room, and we all know somebody now that is in jeopardy by this particular malady, this virus. So it is now getting so pervasive in Alaska that they believe that we have one out of every 50 people has this disease now, either asymptomatically or symptomatically. And I know it's lower, or the percentage in Colorado, I believe, is one out of 40. So if you're in a group of 500 people, well, there's 10 of them that are likely symptomatic or asymptomatic. So just be careful. I'm saying, let's let's see what happens. Hopefully, again, this... Uh, Science comes through, which would be the first time. Never mind, that's just my joke there. John Adams talked about the U.S. electoral process in, in a distance way. He said that a, de- a democratic republic was formatted, I'm sorry, formatted for a moral people and a religious people, and it was wholly unprepared for an immoral and a non-religious people. As our country becomes more immoral and and less religious, then our method of governance will fail. Founding fathers understood that beautifully, and we saw that in the electoral process. Uh, The electoral process has become uh, corrupted to the point where we can't ever depend on it again in my view. Uh, The electoral processes uh, depend on morality. And if you have immoral people that want power, that seek power to the exclusion of morality, then you will get an electoral process that will fail. I don't know if I'm talking loud enough. Am I? I hope I am. Uh, but uh, our free will capitalism has fed more people and freed more people than any system that has ever existed in the history of man and has raised people out of poverty unlike any other system. But now we're watching at the end of the age, I believe, the immorality begin to destroy the free will capitalism. And we're descending, as Russia already has, into an oligarch system, an oligarchy ruled by the obscene rich. Uh, we have that. The elites of this country are as they become less and less moral. One thing about being rich, the Bible does not, uh, does not reward people who are rich. In fact, it holds them in peril. It says that the rich have a very difficult time seeking Christ. They just don't do it. They choose not to do it. Did you lock the door there, young lady? Okay, that keeps the shrews from coming up during the lecture. The squirrels and the birds, because I feed them, right? That's what I do. So they depend on my consistency. So enough of that. I just—that's uh, the warm, fuzzy part, uh, the the uh, cheer you on part of the lecture. Now it gets uh, a little bit more bleak. That's a joke, I hope.
Okay, we are at December 13th, 2020, lecture discussion number 124 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job. And if you have been listening consistently, and if so, there are remedies, pharmacological remedies. Uh, Medicare will pay for them, as you know. I'm, I'm, I'm authorized by Medicare for insomnia. But if you've been at least have been following along for the previous two months or thereabouts, um, first I should say thank you to the one that has been doing that. Thank you. You're the one. Then you're going to recognize the Jude 9 equation because that's what I have been doing. And I'm going, to, I'm going to put it on the board here in a more fundamental pattern so that you can recognize it. I've been doing the Jude 9 equation. I got a letter a while back from two ladies in California, I believe, Bakersfield. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm positive that it's Bakersfield, but I've been positive before. Uh, Baljo and Susie, they wanted to know about the mystery of Jude 9. And as soon as I saw the letter, I went like this. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm going to do it. I thought it was worth doing, and I was kind of in the subject anyway. So we went ahead. I took it on, knowing what I was up for and that what uh, how difficult it is. This is also the mystery of the body of Moses, if you want to think of it that way. Why was Moses separated out of all men the way he was with regard to his death? This is Moses contending with Satan over the body of Moses. What is that all about? It's just one one verse, Jude 9. It's amazing. To consider all the aspects of it. This is the death of Moses, if you want to think of it that way, the face-to-face death of Moses, God and Moses, and then the subsequent hiddenness, the concealing of the body of Moses, which is what God has done. Why would he conceal it? Who is he concealing it from? Why does the one he's concealing it from want to have access to it? All of those questions whoosh come flying out. So there's a basic equation, a, a, a simplified formula, if you wish to think of it that way, and I express it as a mathematical statement of equality, and it, and it looks something like this. Now, this is going to be a mess. I know, because I wrote it, so it's awful. But let's see what we can do. We start out with, I'm going to get, make lots of room here. You're going to think that the, one of the first times Supper Dave ever spent any time in my office, I had this blackboard similar to this, didn't I? Not a whiteboard. Was it a chalkboard? Or a whiteboard. Do you remember? Anyway, I had all of the various aspects of the evolution creation debate on that board. Everything that had to be answered from insects to immune system to every aspect that I could consider. And it filled the whole board up and I never erased it. And I intended to take a photograph of it so I at least have it. And I never did. So we're going to do this instead. Uh, it's not the same. It's not as complicated in my view, but it's very difficult. So we're going to start in our equation with Deuteronomy 18.15. And then we're going to add to that Deuteronomy. And I have to look down to it because I have not memorized it. Obviously, you'll see why. Deuteronomy 5-12. through 12. And then we're going to add to that Genesis 2.7. And then we're going to keep adding. We have a lot of adding. We're going to, we're going to add Romans... 5.14 here, which you recognize immediately goes back to Deuteronomy 18.15, but I put it after Genesis 2.7 because I believe that's where it belongs. We have Psalm 16.10, and you know what that is, I hope. We'll get all of that here in a second. Uh, after that, adding to that is uh, Ezekiel now comes along. Uh, Ezekiel 1.4. And we add uh, 2 Kings 2.1. 1. 
after Second Kings 2.1. Oh, and also 2.11, so I should make that. After those two, we have Genesis 5. Uh, 22 through 25. And now we are at Genesis. I should probably put Matthew in here, I think. I think Matthew has to go. I'll start abbreviating names in a minute. 22.31. And of course, the complement in the Old Testament of Matthew 22.31 is Genesis 28.13. And after. Genesis 28.13, make sure i got my place here. I've got 2 Kings 13. Uh, 20 and 21. And Matthew 17. 1 through 13. Uh, and then Genesis 1.3, which is a big one. Plus John 8.12. As you know, I've done Genesis 1.3 and John 8.12 so many times now. I hope you recognize what those are immediately. And then, of course, now we are in Exodus 3.14 because of John 8.12, right? And 8.11.25. But I've skipped 11.25 for a second here. Uh, Make sure, where am I? 8.12, Exodus 3.14 plus John 11.25 you recognize immediately belongs with John 8.12 and Genesis 1.3. And then Job shows up finally at uh, 1.9 through 12 plus um, I, I want to put Romans 5.14 in here again even though I have it someplace else just to make sure that you see Romans 5.14 for it's a great value here. I've left out 1 Timothy 2.14 but there's where it would go if I didn't leave it out and then I didn't leave it out how about that wow what kind of professional do I have here uh, uh, we have uh, Exodus 3.2 through 6 which you would expect would be back here with Exodus uh, what did I say Exodus 3.14 and you would be right about that and almost done, I think. Let me see. Oh no, I just got 30 more of them to do. So then after Exodus here, we have Job uh, 2, 1 through 10. And you know what that is because we've been covering it, I hope. That is Job and Satan. And uh, then we go to Genesis 3, 4. After Genesis 3, 4, uh, Job... Oops. 38.7, that is the joy of the angels. And then you add Job 3 to that, where that is the curse of Job. After Job 3 is Job 42. Oops. 13 through 15. I'll just write them down here and cover them in a second. Plus then Ezekiel 28. And Isaiah 14. I always put the I before the A with Isaiah. Why I've done it for my whole life, I don't know. 12 through 14. And then, getting close to the end now. Let's see, you've got 10 to go. Plus, now we got Psalm 10 here. 
And you remember we quote we went through Psalm ten because of what's in and Psalm ten immediately connects to Second Peter uh, three, eight and nine. So does Genesis one four. Is Genesis one four on the board yet? No, it's not. Where is Genesis one four? Oh right after this I wrote down Genesis one two and Genesis one four. Like I knew what I was doing. Should have just looked at my notes. After those two, we have Genesis 1, 6 through 7. And then Matthew 25, 31, and 33. And coming to the final part of it, I hope. After that, we've got Zechariah. Now, I have redundant pluses over here. Does that offend anybody? Okay. I have Zechariah 4, uh, 11 through 14. And of course, when I've got Zechariah, then I have to have Revelation 4. I'm sorry, Revelation 11. And then uh, 11, 4. And then, of course, Revelation uh, 11, 11. Uh, through 14. Uh, and when now, when I get there, I finally equal Jude 9. Okay. That's what Mary Ann and, uh, I'm sorry, Val Joe and Susan uh, wanted me to do. And that's not even half of it. But that's what I think is the is the essence that will get you through it, in my view. And to reemphasize, this is a simplified cursory equation. Um, oh, I forgot my clock. I need to get my clock. Oh, I can see it over there. I wondered how long that would take me to do. It worried me a great deal. This is this is cursory. It is simple. It is squeezed. As an equation, I've intentionally set aside a lot of the components, many of the components that should be included, but I'm the HTRP, right? So I can do this without being disrespectful. Or, or uh, I've excluded the ones that I could without affecting the calculation for the sake of time. And, and many of you out there listening to me, and there's a lot more of you than I know, you don't always leave little hearts and smiley faces on Facebook. You're, you're out there by quite a bit. And, Occasionally a phone call I'll get from you, but uh, you might quibble with my order, and I will agree my order is not flawless. And you may wish to interchange for the sake of implying importance. That's when I've done this before. People have said, well, this is more important than that. And, and many theological experts uh, wish to do that kind of thing. And, and I would counter that for a created being to assign a hierarchy to the word of the Most High Creator God, um, He's the I am that I am. He's outside of time. To try to say this verse is more important than the other verse is fraught with difficulty and certainly maybe hubris, and I'm trying my best not to expose that particular defect in me. It reminds me of the joke whenever I'm told you're out of order, uh, you've got this is more important than that, or whatever the case may be. It's the two children who are arguing over who can come up with the largest number, and it finally devolves into my infinity is bigger than your infinity. Uh, that's what you're up against when you're trying to move these pieces around. Which infinity is the most important infinity? 
Anyway, I concede, again, I can't say it enough. This is incomplete. The formula, the equation is incomplete, and it's purposely incomplete uh, for the sake it, uh, of at least bringing a piece of the task at hand to the forefront. The mystery of Jude 9 down here is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It might be a hundred marathons. Uh, it is as difficult a problem as I think is in Scripture. Okay, what do we got here? Let's just I'll attempt to make some sense out of it. Note, note the disclaimer. I'll skip a little bit, but I'll get most of it, I hope, uh, making sense out of it. Oh, are you going to take a picture? Am I out of the way? Is it on? Are you taking this for your own? Are you going to sell it? No. Okay, because there's no money in that. I'll wait for you to conclude. Now I'll ruin the picture. Okay. Uh, I'll attempt to make this sensible, or make sense of some kind. And that, again, a disclaimer. The likelihood that it remains uh, dim and, and, uh, and shrouded. Let's just say that there are no zero probabilities. So I, I know... Uh, there's a chance that I'll make some sense out of it, but there's also a chance it may confuse still a lot of people. So here we go really fast. The Deuteronomy 18.15, that is the typology of Moses. That is Moses being similar to Christ. Look at Moses. He's the prophet like unto me. Uh, he will re- reflect Christ. You can figure out what, who Christ is and what Christ is doing and why he's doing it by looking at Moses. Deuteronomy 34, that's the burial of Moses, the death of Moses, the hiddenness of, of Moses. That's very important. That's Moses face to face. There's none like Moses and he was hidden. There's none been hidden except for Moses. It's incredible what, what, what goes on there in Deuteronomy 34. 2.7, of course, is the breath of life going into the body of Adam. So I have the breath going down to a body that's on the ground and the body springs up, boom, and is animated and manifests the mind. Romans 5.14 is the typology of Adam. That's fantastic to know because Adam and Moses combined will give you a picture of Christ that's just amazing. Psalm 16.10 is, of course, the body of Christ cannot, it is impossible for it to go into corruption. It cannot go. Why is it impossible that the body of Christ cannot go into corruption? Ezekiel 1.4 tells you about the whirlwind. The whirlwind is the, pure, uh, the, the pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud, of course, has the throne of Christ in it as well as the cherubim. 2 Kings 2.1-2.10 2, is Elijah goes up into the pillar of cloud. Uh, he goes into the whirlwind and he throws down his mantle, which is used to divide the waters. Genesis 5, 22 through 25, what's that? I'm not looking at my notes, I'll make mistakes. What is that? That's, of course, Enoch. Enoch is brought up, he's taken up, translated. Why is Enoch uh, done, to, why is it done like that? Where am I here? Oh, a different page. Uh, Matthew 22, 31, of course, is, uh, where Christ says, I am that I am. I am the God of the living. That associates immediately with Genesis 28.13 where he says it there as well. So he says it in two places. I am the God of the living. I am not the God of the dead. At 28.13, that's Jacob's letter. Uh, here at Matthew 22-31, he is telling that to the Sadducees who believe that humanity is hopeless. There is no resurrection. They deny the resurrection. And he says, I am the God of the living. I am that I am. He announces that he is the God of uh, Exodus 3.14, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Here I am at 2 Kings 13.20-21. What is that? That is the body of Elisha. 
Just as I have the body of Moses, I have the body of Elisha. You touch the body of Elisha, and what happens to you? Resurrection. That's why it's on the list. Matthew 17. Uh, Moses and Elijah testify that Christ is the light of life. He exposes that he is the Genesis 1-3 light of life. Where is Genesis 1-3? 1-2, 1-4. It's got to be on here. If it's not on here, I've made a terrible mistake. Three down. Genesis 1-3. Three three down. Oh, here it is. I circled it for goodness sakes. Of course, it belongs right next to uh, Exodus 7. I'm sorry, Matthew 17, because they're testifying in Matthew 17. The two of them are doing that. That Genesis 1-3, that's who Christ is. He is Genesis 1-3. John 8-12 says the same thing, that he is the light of life, which is again Genesis 1-3. Exodus 3-14 says, I am that I am. I am the I am. I'm outside of time. I'm pre-existent. I'm the one that holds all of time in me. I'm infinite. Also, Revelation chapters 1-3. through I didn't put them on there. John 11-25 is where he says, I am that I am, and I am the resurrection and the life. There is no other resurrection. There is no other life. There's something different about the two. We covered that already. Job 1, 9 through 12. Uh, that is, of course, where uh, uh, Satan is given permission to attack Job, kill his children, kill his servants, take his livestock. That's test one. Uh, again, I have Romans 5, 14 and, and, and Timothy 2, 14. First Timothy 2, 14 here because of the typology that is Job and Adam. Exodus 3, 2 through 6 is the burning bush, the I am that I am. Uh, Job 2, 1 through 10 is the second test. I have a test here. I have a test there. I have two tests by Satan. Why do I have two tests? What are the difference between the two tests? Did you think it was the same test? If you did, you would be mistaken. The tests are dramatically different. Satan is given permission to bring disease to Job in the second test. Job is disfigured. He's unrecognizable. He's infested with worms. Uh, He's unable to breathe, Job 9.18. His skin is black and it is falling off, Job uh, 30.30. I didn't put all of those on there. Now I'm at Genesis 3.4. Can I step off the side? Yes, I can. Now I'm at Genesis 3.4. What's that? That's the test of Eve. I have a test one of Job. I have test two of Job. And I have a test of Eve. How many tests did I have for Satan? Job 38.7, of course, is where the sons of God shouted for joy when the light of life, Genesis 1.3, struck the darkness and divided the darkness, separated the darkness from the light, good from evil. Job 3, of course, is where Job curses Job. This is an incredible thing. Job 42.13-15 is the resurrection of Job's sons and daughters, the beauty of his daughters. Now, I know people disagree with that. I, it's hard to find anybody who agrees with me here, but I'm going to make the case as strong as I can against today. And that the healing of Job comes. When I always ask, Job is horribly disfigured, and he is a mess. He's infested, infected with worms, and yet he somehow gets healed. Okay? When does that happen? Not somehow. He does get healed. When does that happen? Where is the healing of Job? How long? There's 42 chapters there. What is the time period here? How many days, years, months? What do you think? How many days did... Oh, my goodness. Sounds like firecrackers there, the ambiance. 
Ezekiel 28 shows up because that is the fall of Satan, Isaiah 14. Also the fall of Satan, Psalm 10 is the lie of Satan laid out incredible. The darkness of it, the evil ones believe that they will not face adversity. They will not be held account. That God is in none of the thoughts of Satan. God stands afar off. God hides and God waits. That's why Psalm 10 is so important. All of those fit together. Second Peter 3, 8 through 9, God wills that none should perish. I hope you can connect that. I hope you can figure out where that goes. I, I had one nice lady, I think it was Mary Ann, who was thrilled that I put Second uh, Peter 3, 8 and 9 back to Genesis 1, 4. That's where it belongs. Genesis 1, 4 comes. Uh, that's why I have them as I do, I hope. Where is it? Yes, I have uh, Peter 3, 8 and 9, Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 1, 4. I have the world in darkness in 1, 4. I have the division of the dark from the light. And of course, uh, where he's dividing the darkness. Again, God is not in the darkness. He divides the light from the darkness. Genesis 1, 6. God defines, divides, divines, the the God divides the firmament. He divides the water from the waters. All this dividing he's doing. He's dividing the waters from the waters. Why does he divide the waters from the waters? Waters doesn't like to be divided from water. Do you ever have water next to water? See what happens? But he did it. Why does he do that? Revelation 21.1. I hope that's on the board. Yeah, No, it's not. Woo. Let's put it in here. It belongs in here. What is Revelation 21.1? It is where there is no more sea. So he eliminates the sea. He still has water. So he divided the sea from the waters. And then in Revelation 21.1, he gets rid of it. 21.22, I could put that on the board too. See what happens. That is where there is no more sun. And there's great disagreement over that, as you know. Some think there's no more sun in the new city of Jerusalem for sure. Matthew 25.31-33, dividing what? Goats from sheep. So this dividing theme is throughout the entire body Bible. Uh, then we have Zechariah 4, 11 through 14. Uh, that is the two anointed olive trees who stand beside the Lord Christ. Revelation, Revelation 11, 4, that's the two witnesses who are the two olive trees. Revelation 7, I'm sorry, where am I? 11 through 14. Um, I forgot 11, Revelation 11, 7 through 10. <sighs> Screwed it up again. Satan kills them. He isn't able to kill Job. He's able to kill Job's children. He has to have permission to do that. But he does not have permission to kill Job. Why does he have permission to kill Job's children, but not Job? He also doesn't kill Job's wife. Here he kills the two witnesses. Uh, the, uh, he has to be given permission to do that. They're incredibly powerful. And uh, 11 through 14 of Revelation is the two witnesses received the Genesis 2-7 breath of life from Christ who's in the pillar of cloud overhead. He, his voice is loud. He calls them up and they resurrect. They ascend into the whirlwind. Ezekiel 1-4. They, they ascend into the pillar of cloud. 
the pillar of Christ, if you want to say it that way, you'd be right. And now they are with the breath of life who is on the throne in the pillar of cloud. So you add all of that together and that equals Moses contending with Satan. That's Moses. Michael contending with Satan for the body of Moses where Michael says, may God rebuke you. So there it is. That's a piece of pie, easiest cake. I know that. Let me say it another way. Jude 9 is tied to all of these passages. Every time you see one of these passages, you're in Jude 9. Satan attempts to seize the body of Moses in order to prevent, to interfere with the plan of God as it embraces Moses. Satan has an obstruction strategy. Uh, You see it in Genesis 6 where he tries to corrupt every piece of flesh he can. That takes a lot of scientific uh, capability. Uh, the 30 pieces of silver, when, when Judas Satan throws the 30 pieces of silver, he's trying to obstruct, uh, delay, stop, if you will, the crucifixion. Why does he have an obstruction strategy? And if Moses is one of the two olive trees, and I submit that it is obvious that Moses is one of the two olive trees, this is one of the reasons I have this position, is this connectivity right here then the culmination of Moses' assignment, his, his, his uh, office of prophet, if you will, did not end at his death. The, the apex of it, the grand finale, if you will, of his assignment that God gave him is to testify, is to witness to the world during the tribulation. So everyone thought that Moses ended when he wasn't allowed into the promised land. But he is allowed into the promised land, if I'm right. As is Elijah, they enter the promised land as the two witnesses. The center of their ministry is Israel. Now, they they testify to the whole world. And Revelation 11, 4 through 6 gives us a glimpse of Moses' capability, Elijah as well. I think each one of them can do everything that is listed there. Fire proceeds from the mouth of Moses, also Elijah. And anybody that is trying to kill Moses, that fire devours them. Moses can arrest, and he does. He ends the hydrological cycle. A hydrological cycle is evaporation, atmospheric circulation, condescension. Condensation, sorry, not dissension. More water. I used to have things that helped me. Water does not help me. Condensation, condensation and precipitation and then ultimately the, the, the runoff, if you will, the restart of the hydrological cycle. I just want you for really quick, let's veer off here. Think about what it takes to stop that. Now, we have people in this country that believe it's possible to impact this process. And you cannot. Humanity is a little tiny ants and roaches here. Uh, we have no capability to do that. That is, again, that is arrogance and hubris, and it is, in my view, ridiculous. Moses can now turn also turn water into blood. That takes you back to Exodus, right? And he can strike the earth with plagues and, and boils. Oh, look, Job. Elijah can do likewise. 
So why do they have these specific powers? Obviously, these signs that they have are meaningful. They, they as a whole, the, these signs proclaim a, a very significant truth. How is this the case? In other words, how, what is the truth that these signs are giving? They obviously have meaning. What are the meanings of the fire, the hydrological cycle interruption, the blood, and the plagues? Put them all together and figure out what it means. You can figure out what they mean individually, but then put it together and get a totality. So this is individual, individually and collectively. What is the meaning of those four things? And to begin to answer that question, we need to uh, answer other questions, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you wish. You gotta go in order when you do this. The order is, uh, my order isn't great. It's not terrible, not terrible, but it's great. It's not great. So somewhere in between. You have a tendency to put the horse before the cart. That makes no sense. Because now the horse has to push the cart. Why would the horse push the cart? I never, that saying never made any sense to me. Don't put the horse before the cart. Gosh, that's, only an idiot would do that. Anyway, what's the point, yea, a point of the two witnesses? To rephrase the question, what specifically are the two olive tree witnesses witnessing about? What is the entirety of their witness? What are they saying? They're saying things by doing things. Okay, let's keep going. Why are they called the two olive trees? They're also the two anointed ones. The two lampstands. What do they have? They have four capabilities. And they have four names. Probably just arbitrary, just a, you know, an error in publishing or something. So we, it would be prudent to consider their titles. They're given by God Himself. God calls them the two olive trees, Zechariah 4:11, Revelation 11:4. And their titles obviously are germane to their witnessing, to rephrase the rephrasing then. Christ, Revelation 10.1, Revelation 11.3-6, describes his two witnesses, olive trees, anointed ones, lampstands. Revelation 11.1. Is there meaning in his descriptions? Well, of course there is, duh. It's why they are sent. You get the why from what he says about them. Everybody assumes that the, the, what he calls them is just what he calls them. That's what. It's not what. It's why. He calls them because of why. It's why they're sent. Why they have these annotated names and capabilities. Fire, hydrological cycle, blood and plagues. Uh, and, and hidden in all of that, and their names are the. So I have, I have what's you got things hidden in their names and hidden in their signs. Put them all together. Said that badly. The obvious answer is obvious here. The names and powers, the time of the prophesying, the message of the testimony, all of that's meshed together, melted into a, a single unit, an entirety. Nothing about Christ's olive trees is coincidental and arbitrary because coincidence and impulsiveness is incompatible, cannot exist, cannot coexist with omniscience. It is impossible. Okay, let's read Zechariah 4, 11 through 14 and Revelation 11 just so you can get a, a grip on this, I hope. That's my plan. Really, it's never to 
to be comprehensive. It's really only to get do the best I can, which isn't much, as you know by now. Zechariah 4.11, When I answered and said to him, Who is the him? Read ahead or read behind. What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Boy, that's clear, isn't it? Now you got it. Let's just move on. Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? That's a rhetorical question. And Zechariah answered it beautifully. No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, The Lord of the whole earth. For those of you um, who subscribe to the consensus, and there is a consensus with regard to Zechariah 4, um, the majority of the commentation out there has decided that the two olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel because Joshua and Zerubbabel are mentioned prior, and this is subsequent to the uh, to jo- Joshua and Zerubbabel. And therefore they assume and they conclude that they symbolize, they represent the kingly office and the priestly offices of Israel. That's what they say the two olive trees are. And it could be. I, I'm not going to cast it aside and say that's not correct. I do see the the anatomy. I do see Joshua and Zerubbabel. And then I see the olive trees. And it would be natural to make the um, connection to them. And so I won't disavow it. And I won't say that Zerubbabel and, uh, and Joshua do, in fact, play a role here with these two olive trees. I believe they do. And I may, as you know, a timid, compliant inferior to these guys that write and women that write these theological tomes. Uh, So I cautiously raise my hand when I see that view. Never raise your hand. You know that. Especially Kripslein. But I do, and I I want to ask them, and I have asked them, what about the New Testament complement of of, uh, Zechariah 4.11 through 14? Because the New Testament complement of Zechariah 4.11 through 14 is Revelation 11, 3 through 6. And what about the flying scroll of Zechariah 5, 1 through 4? Because if I'm going to make the two olive trees fit with Joshua and Zerubbabel, uh, Zechariah 5 has the flying scroll. So what does the flying scroll have to do with the two olive trees? There must be a reason. It must have something to do with it. Not to mention the woman in the basket, basket Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, or the four chariots of Zechariah 6. I look at it as a unit. I don't think I can separate the Zechariah 4 out, and I do have this complement that is Revelation 4. All of that, all of what I just mentioned, the, the flying scroll, the woman in the basket. Who is the woman in the basket? Why does the scroll fly? How does it fly? I know it's a vision. What about these four chariots? They all find complements, just as, just as Zechariah 4, 11 through 14 finds Revelation 3, 11, sorry, I can't do it, 11, 3 through 6, Zechariah 5, Zechariah 6, they find complements in Revelation 18, Revelation 17, 3 through 5, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. That, I believe, is important. Notice how high my hand's getting now. I started out like this. I ended up like this. Hey. In total, there are eight of these Zechariah visions. 
I would suggest just maybe perhaps that the eight compromise a unit, a totality. And they I gotta go assemble all of them and then compare, lay side by side with Revelation chapters eleven through nineteen, because they do feather together beautifully. And since it's obvious that Zechariah four eleven through fourteen and Revelation eleven what did I say? Since it's obvious it's Zechariah 4, 11 through 14, Revelation 11, 3 through 6, they're essentially identical. We should investigate that. Why well, I, I have something that is so close that it can't be ignored how close it is. Anyway, for today, note that the two anointed ones is literally translated the two sons of fresh oil. That's what this means. What is fresh oil? If I have fresh oil, what else do I have? I have unfresh oil. What's the difference between fresh oil and not fresh oil? And the Lord of the whole earth is is a direct reference to the 1,000 year reign of Christ, the messianic kingdom. These are the two sons of fresh oil who stand beside the Lord when he is ruling the whole earth in the messianic 1,000 year kingdom. That's Zechariah 4.11. Okay, so now let's go to Revelation 11.3-6 and look at this because I think it is conclusive. Again, it's my most humble of all the humbler opinions that I have. And I will give power, this is Christ speaking, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will, I could say anointed ones, I could say sons of fresh oil, I could say uh, lampstands, I could say olive trees, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Why do they have sackcloth? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. That's me, Christ says. I am the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have the power over water to turn them into blood, over waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they will. See, it's my first instinctive consideration if you will, to think that the two olive trees are the two olive trees. That's why I get the big money. In other words, the same olive trees. Zechariah 4, 11 through 14 and Revelation 11, 3 through 6 are two different passages describing the same people, the same thing. So I think the olive trees are olive trees. They're the same. They've got to be the same when you're done. If it's Zerubbabel and Joshua and, and Zechariah, then it's Zerubbabel and Joshua here in Revelation. In this case, the two sons of fresh oil are the two sons of fresh oil. Again, the big money. <laughs> the descriptions are to be added together. I have they're all essentially again the same thing, but I got little pieces to put together. They're condensed into a whole. They're not to be evaluated as disparate matters. What I find most interesting, got to hustle. At Revelation 11, 4 through 6, as you might have already deduced, uh, 
is this Genesis 3-4 connection. I tried to emphasize it as I went by. Obviously, God permits the Satan man, the Antichrist, to kill the two sons of fresh oil. He has to permit it. Whose fire comes out of their mouth? He's got to stop them from burning people up. So he permits it. And they know it's going to happen. And they know why. I know that they know. Because I have lots of clues. Sackcloth is one of the clues. The hidden body of Moses is one of the clues. The ascension of Elijah is one of the clues. Elijah Moses at the revealing of Christ as the one three Genesis light of life. John eight twelve. John eleven twenty five. That's clues. Obviously God permits the Satan man to kill the two sons of fresh oil, the two lampstands, the two olive trees. He, uh, we could read 11, uh, 11, 7 through 14, Revelation. You can read that on your own. And, and I know that that means I've got to place this by Job 1 and Job 2, right? Because of this permission. The two witnesses are indestruct, indestructible. They have the protection of God. The fire in their mouth is the protection of God. Uh, it devours everyone that tries to kill them. There's a hedge around them. You can't kill them when they have this happening. And also, they're sealed, these two, these two olive trees. And see the 144,000 of Revelation 7. And again, Job 1. But God permits the Satan man to kill them, and their bodies are what? Hidden? No. Their bodies are not hidden, Revelation 11.9. So why aren't they hidden? And I've talked about this before, because Satan intends to use them as a propaganda machine. And the whole world believes him for a while. Why doesn't Satan hide and bury the bodies of the two witnesses? Because I think he knows what's going to happen. But he doesn't bury these bodies. Obviously their deaths prove something and Satan wants them to be seen. Now, how, how long are they going to lay there? I don't know that he necessarily knew that, but he's very good at math. I think he probably could have figured it out. How does Satan, how does the Satan man, the Antichrist, kill these two guys? How does he do it? Again, it's got to be permitted, but what is the means of the, how does he, what, what happens that allows him to kill them? Again, the fire has to stop for sure. And those of you who are familiar with Revelation 11 are continued reading in order to get ahead of the HTRP. Uh, you know that they are resurrected by the breath of life, Genesis 2-7. Resurrected. Let me say that. Resurrected. I could talk about it for the next... How many minutes do I have? I have to check. I can't see with my glasses on. Hold oh. me. Macro. Anyway, I got, I didn't get off. I did it on purpose. What I find fantastic is this Genesis 3-4 reference of the existence component, which is Revelation 11-6. The old King James had it best, and I quoted the old King James. They have the power over waters, turn into blood, and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. 
or desire, it says in some translations. Will. They have the will to do this. The two olive trees have will, they have discretion, they have autonomy, they have sovereign control. Aha! They can do what they will. Who says we don't have will? That would be the atheistic determinists, right? The, the, the monistic atheism community, the evolutionary community. They say there is no will, there's only hopelessness. And these two can do what they will. So who watches them do this besides the earth? Who witnesses their will? Okay, to repeat myself, you should be you should be accustomed to that by now, huh? It's been. I figured out that I started teaching 1978. So do the math. Prior to that, I, I used to run classes here. So do more math. What is being said by the fire, the hydrological cycle, the blood, and the plagues? Let's get that as best we can. What are the two witnesses witnessing about? Dave has a uh, military saying that he's told me quite a few times. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? What are they doing here? Clearly the defining piece of the mission is their resurrection. Let me repeat that. Resurrection, it's not their deaths. It's not their being killed by the Antichrist. That's not... The main thing. The main thing is that they are resurrected by the breath of life and called up into the pillar of cloud by the voice. That's the main thing. The point, finally, the point is that the resurrection of these two olive tree lampstands, anointed one, witnesses, witnesses who are clothed in mourning clothes, mourning over something. They're mourning over death. That's sackcloth. Revelation 3. That's what they're doing. They're mourning over someone's death. Whose death are they mourning over? Everyone who dies. Because God mourns for everyone who dies. Train's coming. By their resurrections, the whole earth now knows that Jesus Christ is in fact the John 11.25. They know it for a fact. There is no one who doesn't know that Jesus Christ is the life and the resurrection. And that there is resurrection. The Sadducees are wrong. The determinists are wrong. There is resurrection. There is continuity of the soul. There is resurrection of the body. The whole world knows that. He's the resurrection, the light of life. The whole world celebrated the deaths of the two witnesses. But it's not about hopelessness and death and annihilation. It's always been about resurrection. Everything is about resurrection. I am the God. I am the God of the living. That's what he says, Matthew seventeen one through thirteen. I am that I am the resurrection, John eleven twenty five. He is the God of the living. He is the resurrection, resurrection and life, resurrection unto life, as he defines life. Because as you know, there's a there's resurrection unto death as opposed to extinguishment. There is no annihilation. There is no robotic, automatic, automaton creation. There's eternal creation. And so there's a separation, a separating, a dividing. Christ makes a point, Luke 12, 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? That's a rhetorical question. It implies that you shouldn't suppose that. I tell you, Not at all, but rather division. I'm a divider. 
I'm dividing. Luke 15 or 12:52 further describes houses that are divided three against two, two against three, father against son, son against father, mothers against daughters, daughters against mothers. Christ came to divide. When's the first place, the first time in the Bible that Christ divides? If you said Genesis 1, 4, cookies for everybody. He came to divide, and he did divide. The light from the darkness, Genesis 1, 4, is where the dividing begins in Scripture. And that's Christ doing that. I came. Do you suppose that I came at Genesis 1, 4 to, to give peace on earth? No. I came to divide the light from the darkness. Now, why does he divide instead of just give peace on earth? What does peace on earth mean? He doesn't give peace on earth. I know the songs. I know the verses. But he says, I didn't come in Genesis 1-4 to do that. I came to divide the light from the darkness. Separate the good from the evil. Why does he have to separate the good from the evil? Why can't we all just universally become good? And force us to be good. Because if he did, now we're in trouble, aren't we? So the most obvious of the obvious question, why does he divide short answer? Because of existence. Because he's the life and the life is existence. And it is eternal existence. So he waits, he hides, Psalm 10. He's afar off, he divides. All of those are together. That's why Psalm 10 is on the board. Okay, why are the two witnesses, lampstands, anointed one, also called the olive trees? Why olive trees? Why not fig trees? Definitely not fig trees. Why not apple trees, cherry trees? Why not grapevines? But they're olive trees. Why olive trees? What's the meaning of olive tree? You'll find them called olive trees, Isaiah 41.19. And Jeremiah 11.16 associates the green olive tree with being lovely and of good fruit. There we go. That should make you quickly rush to Genesis 2.9 and Genesis 3.22. The nation of Israel, God calls it uh, his beloved, the beloved of God, Jeremiah 11.15. They had begun to kill and sacrifice their children to Baal Malik, Jeremiah 11.17. And he burned what he called the good olive tree that was Israel. And he broke off their branches. The planter pronounced doom against the wickedness. The one thing you do not want to do is have a society that kills their children. Why? Uh-oh. We're in one of those. There's going to be more children dead in this country than ever before. All that to say the olive tree, the oil tree, the sons of oil, fresh oil, is that which is good fruit and lovely in Scripture. It is mercy forever and ever. It's the mercy of God for eternity in the house of God. Psalm 52.8 Some might then conclude, Revelation 22.2, that the tree of life in the new city of Jerusalem, which bore 12 fruits, which bore, bores 12 fruits for healing, and therefore there won't be any more curse, that this tree in Revelation 22.2 is the olive tree, the oil tree. The oil, anointing oil, of course, is a Holy Spirit reference. Uh, ultimately, Christ is the tree of life, John 11.25. The olive tree is called the good and lovely fruit uh, of mercy for eternity. Where is the tree of the curse? <laughs> Where is the tree of the curse? 
I combined tree and curse and got tr- trees. Where is the tree of the curse? It's not in the new city. Where is it? There is no more curse. There's no more tree that is cursed. Mark 11, 12 through 14. Mark 11, 12, uh, 20 through 21. Genesis 3, 7. Genesis 3, 21. Which one is the tree of cursed? And that, once you have all of that, you have why they wore sackcloth, mourning clothes. Who were they mourning? There is a tree of cursed. Where is it? I have a tree of life with the living. I have a tree of curse with the non-living as Christ defines it. Okay.